Welcome to Bioethics On Air, a program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Today's podcast is the second in a two-part series on brain death. In our first interview, Matthew Hanley spoke about practical challenges concerning the use of neurological criteria to determine when a person has died. In this interview, we focus on the philosophical aspects of determining death. Our guest today is Dr. Melissa Moschella, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America. Dr. Moschella offers an overview of the state of the philosophical discussion on the issue of brain death. She then explains how death is equated with irreversible loss of organismal self-integration and applies this understanding to contemporary realities within the medical field. Melissa, welcome to our podcast today. Thanks. It's fun to be here. I'd like to uh, start off, as we do every podcast, by asking you to tell us a bit about your background, uh, specifically your education and your work experience prior to the Catholic University of America. So I did my undergraduate degree at uh, Harvard University, focusing mostly on uh, political and social theory. Yeah, that little little, <laughs> little place, uh, you know, near a little outside of Boston, you know. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. And then um, I went to uh, Rome to the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross, uh, Santa Croce, and did a master's in. Uh, philosophy also took some theology courses while I was there, uh, and then uh, after that went to Princeton and did an MA PhD program in political philosophy, and then a, a postdoctoral fellowship at the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which is also at at Princeton, mm-hmm. and uh, and then was was very fortunate to uh, to get a job at uh, a Catholic U, uh, which is which is where I still am today. Uh, somewhere, somewhere in the interim, I spent a year at Columbia University's medical school in New York City, working on bioethics there uh, and you know, getting a kind of inside look at how a big hospital like that functions and how ethics committees at big hospitals like that function. So that was, that was a, a very, very interesting year, uh, but ended up deciding that uh, as an academic home, uh, Catholic University was was a better spot for me, so I'm I'm glad to be back there now. That's where you are now. I, I have to admit that you know this, the schools and places where you studied are are really no name places. You know, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of you know, Princeton <laughs> and Harvard and you know all these and, and Columbia. I mean, you know, but anyway, um, another quick question for you in your background. I noticed that you are a member of the Catholic Advisory Board for Ave Maria Mutual Funds. And I was wondering if you could tell a little bit about this role. And there is a, a little bit of personal, um, you know, I guess, disclosure here. I mean, my my uh, my wife and I, we have our retirement funds with Ave Maria. And so when I saw that, um, I, I was like, wow, I, I just want to ask you about that. And, 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 you know, tell us a little bit about that work. Sure. Well, the the role of the Catholic Advisory Board is is mostly to kind of help oversee and advise, you know, as the name suggests, uh, the fund in its efforts to provide uh, people with the opportunity for morally, morally responsible investing. So um, the, the kind of mission and ideal behind the fund is the, behind the fund is the idea that you know in, in your financial life, uh, you 
ought to be morally responsible and you ought to be thinking about what you're contributing to when you're investing in certain companies. And, and so they've provided a mechanism uh, for I mean, Catholics, but really anybody who's, who's concerned about morally responsible investing to be able to invest and be assured that none of that money is going to companies that are involved in activities that are uh, related to, say, abortion uh, or pornography or that, uh, that give to Planned Parenthood um, or that are destructive of, of embryos. So they employ certain screens to, uh, to monitor and then screen out uh, companies that engage in these activities uh, and then they ensure that those, those companies are not included in their investment portfolio. So it's, it's great. And they've also been highly successful in terms of returns on investment. So it's, it's, I think it's a wonderful example of how it's possible, you know, both to invest wisely in terms of, you know, finances and also to invest wisely in terms of moral considerations. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, investing decisions are moral decisions, right? They really are. And right. And a lot of people forget that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. I mean, I've been very, very happy with the, you know, with our returns. Um, so I guess maybe this is turning into a little bit of a commercial five A Maria funds, but um, but no, it, it, it's wonderful work. And, and yes, um, yes, and 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 thank you for your work doing that. All right, so you you started talking about this a little bit, but I'd like to uh, hear more about your current position at uh, the Catholic University of America. Um, tell us about that, how you got there, and and what you're focusing on in your position. Sure. So as I, as I said, I was, I was hired uh, after doing a, a postdoc with the James Madison program at, at Princeton in 2013. And, and you know, basically uh, I uh, applied and hoped to convince them that I would be a good member of the faculty. And, and apparently I, I did. I was fortunate enough to do so and, and to join, you know, my wonderful colleagues in, uh, in, in what is, I think, you know, a, a, just a fantastic um, institution that's, that's really dedicated to, um, to the mission of, of teaching within the Catholic tradition, uh, a broad sort of liberal arts education, not just an education that's instrumental to getting a job. I mean, we, we want our students to get jobs, and in fact, they, they do tend to get good jobs, but... Uh, but we want to educate the the whole person and help people to understand um, the philosophical and theological tradition very well, right? So all of our all of our students take uh, a number of both philosophy and theology courses, and they'll get a really solid uh, training uh, in those areas, as well as in whatever major field they they choose if they if they choose another major uh, at uh, at Catholic U. So my, my classes there mostly focus on things like biomedical ethics or contemporary moral issues. Uh, I also teach a graduate course on natural law or undergraduate courses related to natural law, as well as just kind of general introductory courses. But it, but it really is a gift uh, to be there. Yeah. And again, uh, uh, just as a matter of, of disclosure, my daughter took your class. She took your biomedical ethics class and um, absolutely loved it. And no, it was wonderful so, to have her in class. Yeah. And, uh, and, I, and I have to say, too, um, just as a parent, I've been absolutely thrilled um, with the education that Maria is receiving at CUA. And I, I remember the first, uh, her first day of class, freshman year, she called me up and she said, uh, Dad, uh, have you ever heard of this document called D-Verbum? 
uh, from, the, from the Second Vatican <laughs> Council. And I just went, yes. And uh, so I was very, and, and been, been That's very, great. very good. Yes. So, so keep up the good work. So our podcast today, we're going to be focusing on brain death. But unlike previous podcasts and, and other materials from the NCBC that focus on the question from a medical or from a physical perspective, we're going to be focusing on brain death from a philosophical perspective. And I was wondering, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm not the smartest person in the world, so like, we've got to be very, very slow here. Can you set the scene for us a little bit here? What are we talking about in terms of the difference between brain death when we're talking about it from a medical or a physical sense versus talking about it from a philosophical sense? Well, so brain death in a, a medical or physical sense, it just refers to the death of the brain, right? That refers mm-hmm. to the irreversible cessation of the functions of the brain, including the brainstem. And, um, you know, beginning in uh, the 1970s, 1980s, these kind of neurological criteria for death, right, defining death and diagnosing death on the basis of the absence of uh, neurological function, mm-hmm. uh, that, that started to be a legally, medically and legally accepted criterion for death right. in the 1970s and 1980s. And the backdrop was there that once you had um, the capacity for mechanical ventilation and that this was beginning to be widely used, the heart-lung criteria for death, that you, you were dead when your heart and your lungs irreversibly ceased to function, um, that seemed to many people to be insufficient because now we had machines that effectively could replace the heart and the lungs. And so if you had cases in which uh, the, the cause of, of death or the injury or the trauma that a person was suffering from was, was largely in the brain, uh, it could be possible to kind of make people hang on for a long time in terms of artificially sustaining their heart and lung function when in fact their uh, their brain had ceased to function and they were no longer able to to control their vital function. So that's a little bit of you know the history of of how this came to be adopted as a, a kind of medical and legal criterion for for death. In terms of you know philosophically, the understanding is is related, but phil- it's in a kind of philosophical account that you actually explain, you know, why brain death counts as death. You know, there was a kind of common sense uh, and kind of long history of acceptance of the idea that when your heart stops and when you stop breathing uh, irreversibly, well, then that means that you're dead. And many people associate breath with life and with soul Right. So, you know, often it wasn't felt that you even had to defend that as your criterion for death. Um, but but when it comes to the brain, you know, how why is the death of the brain death, even if a person might be still breathing with the help of uh, mechanical ventilation? Uh, the claim there is that. Well, death really involves the. The the kind of lack of self-integration of the organism, right? We, when you think about, well, what's the difference between a living thing and a non-living thing or a living thing and a dead thing? Well, 
living things, living organisms, they're highly complex integrated units. All the parts work together to sustain the whole, to you know, do things like maintain homeostasis, resist entropy, um, engage in metabolism, uh, direct you know, the growth of the organism to maturity, right? I mean, all the incredible processes that are constantly going on in our bodies keeping us alive. Um, that, that that is, this is a system which is self-integrating, self-governing, self-directing, self-unifying. And, uh, and, and that essentially the brain is, at least in, in organisms of a certain level of complexity, the brain is what makes possible that self-integration, that self-organization, because the brain is, is uniquely capable of kind of directing and governing all of the other all of that. parts. Right. Okay, we're going we're gonna to come back to that because it's, it's a really... It's a really fascinating discussion, but before doing that, I'd like to take a little, maybe a half step back and, and, and say that many of our, our listeners are going to be aware of disagreements concerning the, the, the medical criteria for brain death, as, right. as you previously mentioned, but they're probably not aware of the differing opinions concerning these philosophical understandings of brain death. So before delving more deeply into, the, uh, into this, you know, this integration model, what are some of the what, what's the state of the discussion? What's what are the are, are there disagreements in terms of how we're understanding these philosophical concepts? And if you could just give us a little background in terms of that, there are lots of disagreements <laughs> about these concepts. Well, we're talking philosophers here, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, come on. Exactly, and there and the disagreements are both uh, within the Catholic world, right, among Catholic philosophers and bioethicists concerned with these questions, and also in in the kind of larger world of, of bioethics and philosophy of medicine and, and, um, and, and even among, you know, uh, medical professionals, there are, there are many people who are skeptical that brain death really is the death of the human organism for a number of reasons. Uh, so on, you know, on the, on the philosophy side, uh, there, there are a number of camps, right? So one camp will say, well, what we, we what, sh- what we should really be thinking about is when the person dies, uh, not necessarily when the organism dies. And you know what matters is you know the person is is the thing that matters, right? It's the thing that can can think, that is conscious, can make choices, that can feel, and you know, all that sort of stuff. And they say, well, look, clearly, uh, whatever's going on with the organism. If your brain is dead, uh, there's no, there's nothing, there's no thinking, or feeling, or consciousness that's going on, and so the person's dead. Uh, and and those people will say that that actually the criterion for death should be the death of the of the higher brain, um, mm-hmm. not the death of the whole brain. Right. Whereas okay. the the official kind of legal definition is the death of the whole brain, including the the brainstem, but the, the people who are focused on personhood, they really only focused on consciousness and things like that. They don't really care about the brainstem, which is essentially about kind of automatic functions, so uh, not about pe- higher functions. Right. So those people would say that Terry Schiavo was in fact dead. Yes. So pres- presuming that Terry Schiavo had no consciousness, which right. is, is in fact controversial as I understand it in terms of what, uh, 
her her parents thought her parents thought that she she did actually have some, at least some minimal level of consciousness. But presuming that she did in fact lack all consciousness and was correctly diagnosed as being in a, a persistent vegetative state, uh, then uh, then right the the higher brain people would say that that uh, Terry Schiavo or others in a persistent vegetative state are in fact dead in the sense that there's no there's no person there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so. So that's one view, and then you have other views that uh, ag- agree, uh, or, or that sort of don't, or that want to have uh, an account of death, which is, in some way, biological. Which says, okay, well, no, there, uh, the human body is the kind of essential to the human person. Uh, there's a kind of integrated, right, body soul unity within the person, and as long as the body's alive, the, the the person is still there. And so we need to take seriously um, whether or not the person is actually dead biologically. Uh, there, there are, there are disagreements about basically what, what is required for biological life. Uh, so, so you get people like, uh, like Alan Schumann, who's maybe one of the most famous, uh, very influential critic of, neurological criteria for death, right? He, he does not think that brain death is, is death. And, and his argument is that as, as long as you see, you kind of, as long as you have an entity that is effectively resisting entropy, that, you know, functions like homeostasis and so on are, are continuing, even with the help of uh, mechanical ventilation and other medical support, that as long as that's happening, uh, you still have a living human organism, and and uh, and that death doesn't occur until basically all of that resistance to entropy, all of that biological functioning and homeostasis is 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 gone. Um, so you know, so on that view, if you really wanted to take it to its kind of full logical conclusions, it's, it's not clear that the person would, would really be dead until you actually started to get, say, decomposition. Right. That's uh, exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah. Hmm. Very interesting. What would, now, now there are those, uh, and you mentioned this before, there are those who are uh, very critical of the uh, the whole brain death criteria, or the American Academy of Neurology criteria for brain death on the on the medical side, right. do the do, do those people and and I, and and to be honest with you, um, the NCBC has been criticized. You know, our position on brain death has been criticized, and, and it's 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 a, it's a very interesting discussion. Would those people which which philosophical position would would they take with? In terms of their critique of of the medical criteria, well, would they, they adopt one of the ones that you said, or are, are they would they argue something different on on the philosophical level? They honestly, they could be all over the map in terms of where they're coming from philosophically, uh, and their reason for criticizing the 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 current uh, criteria. So, um, so you could be you could you could think even that as I do that brain death correctly diagnosed is death and still worry that perhaps the criteria for kind of testing or diagnosing brain death 
mm-hmm. are are not foolproof or are not stringent enough. Uh, and 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 so a lot of times, you know, some of the people who argue that brain death is not death coming from the medical community, sometimes really what they're arguing about is about the sufficiency of the current diagnostic criteria. Uh, so because the current diagnostic criteria, for instance, you could, um, you know, you could go through the whole battery of, of tests that would then diagnose a person as, as brain death, but that would be consistent, for instance, with um, continuing function of the hypothalamus at some level, because none of, none of the things that we test for actually look at the function of the hypothalamus, which regulates um, sort of hormones and, and, and things like that. We're, we're really looking at in, in most of the, the aspects of the, the test for diagnosis of, of brain death are essentially functions of the brainstem, all the, all the autonomic functions of the brainstem, uh, and ultimately the, the kind of last step of the test if, um, all the others have uh, have not shown any signs of of brainstem function. The last step would be a, a test that basically tries to determine whether or not uh, the patient still has any drive to breathe at all, right? Which would be then the sort of most basic level of auto- autonomic function. And so, if you have none of these reflex functions or or any evidence of the drive to breathe, then um, you know, according to the current tests, you'd be uh, you'd be considered brain dead. Uh, but as I said, uh, it, it would be possible on those tests to, that, that actually some parts of your brain, like your hypothalamus, could still be working. Right. Um, and so pe- some people worry about that, right? That maybe, um, maybe that's a problem uh, with, with, the, with the criteria, if, 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 with the tests, if not with the actual in-principle idea of, of brain death as death. Um, I'm going to come back to this question about the, the adequacy of the neurological criteria, criteria with the Jaheim McMath case. But I want to go back to um, some of the things you were talking about earlier, talking about self-integration. Mm-hmm. And you stated in um, one of your works, which I, which I read in preparation for this interview, you said this, quote, death equals irreversible loss of organizational self-integration which equals irreversible cessation of function of the master part, unquote. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I think, first of all, I think you <laughs> slightly misread the quote. I think you meant death is equals the irreversible loss of organismal self-integration. Oh, organismal. My bad. I, I read it incorrectly. Thank you. No problem. Um, so, so what does that mean? Well, so that... Uh, is basically I, I'm trying to explain if if self-integration is kind of the hallmark of of life, right, of an organism, as I was saying earlier, then you have to think about well, what what is necessary for self-integration? What does that mean, right? And and even just to kind of flesh out that that idea, you know, one way to realize the importance of self-integration is to say, well, okay, well, what's the difference between a bunch of organs sitting around, you know, uh, a living heart, living lungs, you know, living kidneys or whatever, you know, imagine just sort of all of my body parts alive, but not connected to each other, but just, you know, out in the lab being kept alive. 
Uh, well, clearly that's not an organism, right? Because they're, they're, they're not right. integrated. They're not working right. together. Um, you, you have an organism when you have all of these parts working together as a unified whole. And it's not just parts working together as a unified whole, because then you might say, well, what about a, what about a, a robot or a computer, right? I mean, with the technology that we have today, you can have great complexity, right? Very complex systems, multiple parts working together as a unified whole, but we don't call computers alive or robots alive. Why? Well, they're not self-integrating, right? The source of their integration, the source of their unity, uh, their unified functioning is external to them, right? It's in the programmer, basically, right? That put that together and and provided this external principle, external source of unity uh, for all of the parts of the computer or the robot or whatever the artificial thing is. Whereas with organisms, what's amazing uh, about organisms is that organisms integrate themselves. They build them, they literally build themselves and integrate themselves, keep themselves integrated throughout life. Uh, and, and so it's self-integration, right? That is the hallmark of organismal life. And the reason why that self-integration is, is key uh, is, again, it's the only way that you can distinguish between natural living things and artificial complex systems. Uh, so this, the concept of a, of a master part, uh, which you mentioned, uh, quoting from some of my work on this, the concept of a master part is, is meant to provide an account of what's required to actually have self-integration as opposed to externally produced integration. Um, so the idea of a master part, you know, you could think of it as, as, as kind of like a, the conductor of an orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, it's, Which you it's use the that part, image in your, in your writing. Yes, too. I do use that image in my writing, right? So the, the master part is the part, or, or it could be in, in uh, simpler organisms, it could be a system of parts. It need not be a single, a single vital part. Um, but uh, the, the master part is either a, a single vital part, a single organ, or a system of parts um, that has the biological function of regulating or controlling all of the other vital parts directly or, or indirectly. Um, so the argument is that in the absence of such a, a kind of master part, such a, a kind of conductor part, there's basically no inner unifying principle. Um, so even if, you know, you could keep uh, a bunch of body parts working together in a coordinated fashion with the help of technology, the argument would be, well, but that's not self-integrating. Self and so right. it's really no longer actually, it doesn't have an inner source of unity, an inner principle of, of unity. Um, so so, the, so it's, it's artificial in some ways. Uh, what's keeping it together is artificial rather than, rather than natural. Now I'm going to be the master of the obvious here and make the assumption that this master part is the brain. Exactly. So in humans, uh, well, in any uh, mammals, right, complex uh, animals, uh, at least beyond a certain level of 
development. We can talk about embryos and sort of early stages of life a little bit later, but but certainly in postnatal stages of human life or the life of any mammal, uh, it's clear that the brain serves the function of master part, that the brain is uh, the part of the body and the only part of the body that is capable of directly or indirectly regulating or controlling all of the other vital functions. There's a a certain level of autonomy, right, in which the different organs kind of know, right, what they need to do. But the brain is there that is constantly, right, uh, through the the nervous system, uh, receiving information about what's going on in the various parts of the body. It gets that kind of holistic vision of everything that's happening everywhere in the body and then right sends back signals to the other parts of the body uh to to modify their function accordingly in order to keep the whole in good shape right and and the brain is the only the only part that that can do that so i mean again going back to the the kind of orchestra mm-hmm. analogy right the in a in a kind of traditional orchestra you know large traditional orchestra the conductor is the only one who has a kind of vision of the whole, right? Usually in a typical orchestra, the individual players only have the music with their own part on it. They don't have a kind of vision of the whole piece and how all of the parts fit together. And and the conductor is the only one that can see everybody, see how each of the parts are, are doing and communicate simultaneously with all of the all of the parts of the orchestra. And that's essential for keeping the orchestra together. Um, Now, a lot of that work actually happens in the practices beforehand, right? As the conductor uh, comes up with a kind of vision of the piece, transmits it to the, to the orchestra and so on, such that, you know, once they've learned it, they could probably effectively keep, keep doing it at least to a certain, you know, degree on, on their own. But, um, but in, in the human body, there's no, there's no part other than the brain that really has that vision of the whole, uh, because once you get to a, a certain degree of specialization of the cells, um, the the cells no longer have kind of active instructions to do what the other types of cells can do, right? So this the ultra specialization that happens with complex organisms like ours uh, means that uh, the parts only only you know the, that our different cell types only see you know uh, their own part of the music, if you will, uh, and it's only the brain that has that holistic vision right right so the heart cells don't know what the kidney cells are doing and vice versa and right and you need that right. master part so then if i could if, if i could infer what you're saying then so when you have the irreversible cessation of this master part i.e the brain right that's death exactly because once once the there is no master part that is integrating the other parts that is regulating and controlling them, then you've effectively lost that principle of self-integration. Uh, and since that's the hallmark of organismal life, once you've irreversibly lost that principle of self-integration, that that means that the organism is dead. And one thing that I think is important to, to point out here, and it's important for, for the debate on this, is that um, death clearly cannot mean that every single cell in the body has ceased living, right? It's very clear that 
even in the most non-controversial cases of people being dead, um, that the a number of, of cells and, and even whole organs for a while can continue to function mm-hmm. um, for hours and some, some things even days uh, after the, the organism as a whole has died. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's important because, um, because otherwise we can get kind of confused by people that say, well, wait a minute, if brain death is death, how come it's possible to, to keep some brain dead bodies going for a while with the help of, of technology? Um, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't it be impossible to keep those bodies going even with technology if, uh, if brain death were death? And, and I think that's mistaken uh, in part because it fails to recognize that the, that the parts have a certain autonomy and they can keep going. In fact, you know, you could, you could take parts and they've, and they've done this say with um, the liver and the kidney of a pig, uh, right? They sort of take out the, the liver and the kidney, they keep them alive in a lab or perfusing them with oxygenated mm-hmm. blood. They have them connected to each other. So they're actually kind of interacting in much the same way as they would within the, the living pig body. Um, but clearly we don't think that, that what's, you know, this kidney liver circuit as it's called is actually the same thing as the pig was right. Um, nor would we think, you know, if you could extend this and, and take out, you know, effectively almost all of the vital organs of any particular person, connect, keep them alive in a lab, connect them in a circuit and keep them going with technology, you wouldn't say, oh, well, that means that person is still alive. Right. Um, and, and, and so you might say, well, it's not clear how that you know, extended multi-organ circuit kept alive in a lab is all that different from a brain-dead body being kept alive uh, with, uh, with the help of, of life support and, and other uh, medical support. How does the uh, understanding of the soul play into this discussion? And, and feel free to speak about it both philosophically and theologically. Sure. So, um, you know, in the, in the terms of kind of the metaphysics of Aristotle and St. Thomas, the concept of, of soul is, well, first of all, it's, it's not limited to humans, right? So the, the concept of soul in kind of metaphysical terms just refers to this inner principle of integration and organization that distinguishes living things from non-living things. Um, so, you know, on, on these metaphysical terms, you know, any, any living thing, plants, animals, or whatever, have a soul, which is their principle of integration and organization, their principle of, of life. Now, obviously, um, in humans, we understand that the soul is more than that, um, is more than just the, the principle of biological integration and organization, because we humans have capacities that go beyond just biology, right? Uh, right. We have capacities to do things like, you know, talk about, talk about metaphysics and, uh, <laughs> and, and think about the ethics of, of brain death and organ donation and all sorts of other, um, you know, medical technologies, right? So these are, may or may not, but it is what it is. And we, uh, so if, you know, we have these capacities, which effectively transcend the biological 
and physical realm, um, and which you know give evidence of the fact that our soul is um, not merely a principle that integrates our biology, but is also um, a spiritual right. principle uh, making possible uh, our rational capacities, our, our capacity to, to make free choices, our moral responsibility, right? All of that. Right. Um, so, but, but when it, so when it comes to discerning the presence of the soul, uh, of course, the spiritual part of the soul, you can never <laughs> be sure of its presence or absence because there, there will be no, no immediate physical or biological evidence of the presence of the spiritual part of the soul, right? By definition, that's not the sort of thing that is going to immediately manifest itself in any physical property or biological property. So when we're trying to, to figure out, you know, uh, is, is a soul there? Um, because when you're talking about the definition of death, traditionally, you know, death is understood as the separation of body and soul, right? right. The soul has left the body, right? right. So, um, you know, how, do, how do you know that's going to happen? Well, that's not something that you can observe directly mm -hmm. um, because the soul, um, as I said, is, is not, for humans, has a spiritual element, but also even in general, right? The soul is, is not a physical part. The soul is a principle of integration and organization, right? And you could think about soul if you wanted to translate this metaphysical term into kind of contemporary biology. Uh, you could think about the soul as the kind of basically the, the structure, the biological structure that is necessary for self-integration. Um, the kind of formal elements of the way that, that we are organized, right. That, that make possible um, this self-directed uh, unity, right. Of, of biological life. And, and so on my view, I think that you, the best way to discern the presence or absence of the soul is to see if there is evidence of what's needed for organismal self-integration, which then is to see if effectively there, there is a master part or system of parts that can regulate or control all of the, the organism's parts. So I, I think all of these things kind of dovetail with one another. So what we're looking for when we're looking for the presence or absence of the soul is self-directed unification, self-directed integration. And as I said before, that for that self-integration, that self-directed integration and unification, uh, what you need is a a master part, a part that has the ability to regulate and control all of the other organisms' parts, i.e., the brain. Exactly. Uh, again, in in postnatal mammals and other complex organisms like us. Okay. I'd like to go back to uh, you raised some interesting points um, about about ventilators, and I'd like to ask you the question. Can a machine, and I think I know the answer based on what you said, but I'd like you to talk about it a little bit more. Can a machine, such as a ventilator, assume the function of the master part, i.e. the brain? I do not think that a machine can take over for the master part. So the master part is, uh, is special 
Um, and part of what part of its kind of specialness is that the master part is is irreplaceable uh, in a way that other parts are are not. Right. So a machine, if a machine effectively takes over for your heart function, um, you're still alive. Right. Um, if a machine takes over your kidney, your kidney function, right, your kidney function is if your kidney function is almost entirely based on dialysis. Right. And it's it's an external machine that's really doing what your kidneys should be doing. Um, you're still alive, um, even if you know. And so what you know, what that means is, well, to the extent that your kidneys aren't functioning, your kidneys are not uh, capable of being regulated or controlled by your master part. And so your kidneys are are really um, not fully integrated with the rest of you, right? Which is what it means to say that they're not working. Um, and so an external, uh, you know, medical technology is, is used to replace or at least partially replace uh, some of that. But when it comes to the master part, uh, I think metaphysically, if you were to, when you get rid of the master part, you get rid of the part that accounts for the self-integration and so I think it's actually, it's continuity, biological continuity with respect to the master part that is the source of the biological continuity of the organism itself, mm -hmm. such that when the master part is gone, um, you're dead. And even if you would replace it with something else, uh, whatever, whatever results from that is a new, is a new and different thing um, that you've now become something else. How does artificial intelligence play into this, if at all? I don't really think artificial intelligence plays into this uh, very much at all. Uh, I, I actually, I honestly think a lot of the claims of artificial intelligence and what it can do are, are very misleading and overblown. Uh, insofar as you know, effectively, artificial intelligence is just really, really, really fast processing speed and <laughs> and really clever programmers. <laughs> right that that are that are putting algorithms right into machines that can process data way faster than we can and so come out with lots of outcomes right so it's just it's just a tool that ultimately relies on real human intelligence to to do what it does so you're not so in the future you don't see artificial intelligence replacing the brain as this master part that that directs self integration no, no, I don't, I don't see that as, as a possibility at all. Good. All right. And I hope you're right. I, I really do. I know there's a lot of people who are, are working on this stuff and it, it, it this, you know, this whole artificial intelligence, um, it, it, it raises a lot of questions and, and this would be, you know, and this is one of them. And, um, all right, moving on. So you brought up a couple of times, um, uh, very young human life, embryonic life, right. um, in terms of self-integration. So how would you respond to people who argue using, you know, using the argument that you've given about what, what death is, how would you respond to people who argue that a zygote or an embryo, it doesn't have a brain. And so therefore there can be no master part directing self-integration. How do you respond to that, to that challenge? So my, my argument would be that the, the zygote or the embryo does have a master part, but that that master part is decentralized at okay. that early stage of life. So, so the, the claim that every organism has to have some 
master part. It's not that there has to be a specific organism or cell or, you know, nucleus or something like that, that, that is the master part, but the master part could also be a system of parts that regulates the whole. And so you could, you could talk about the master part as also being decentralized. And when you look around at, you know, the variety of biological life that's out there, what you find is that very, very simple organisms, organisms with relatively few cell types, um, generally have decentralized master parts. Um, so, you know, think about an amoeba, right? They're kind of mm-hmm. about, about as simple as it gets, right? Well, the, the nucleus is essentially going to be the, the master part there. Or, but if you think about, say, a, a plant, you know, plants can be big, but plants are relatively simple. They have basically three types of cells. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so, you know, plants don't have something like a brain that oversees and regulates the whole thing. Um, plants operate with a kind of decentralized master part. And that's possible for plants because, again, because they're relatively simple. And you could think even about the fact that plants, you know, um, ha- you, can, you can reproduce plants with cuttings um, often from from any part of the plant, if you know how to do it correctly, right? Um, that all of the the that in many parts of the plant there are cells that are what you call totipotent, right? That are capable of of performing the functions of all the types of cells, not just their own, right? So the specialization among the cell types in relatively simple organisms like plants um, is uh, is relatively minimal and 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 they're just not that complex so if you think of you know back to the kind of musical ensemble analogy if you think about a plant or a simple organism like a plant that's kind of analogous to say a a kind of chamber ensemble you know three violinists playing an arrangement of Paco Bell's Canon or something like that right they don't need a conductor to be unified uh, because, well, there's only three of them. They can look at each other. They can communicate just by seeing what, what each is doing. And they, they all do have a vision of the whole and, and, and all of that. But, but once you get bigger, right, you get to a, like a full scale orchestra and so on. Well, that's not, that's not possible. Um, so in, in the early embryo, you do have evidence of self-integration, of mm-hmm. self-directed uh, functioning. Uh, and, and clearly self-directed functioning that is aimed at growth toward full biological maturity of the human organism, right? You have specialization that happens even from the very first cell division. It's reversible specialization, but it al- there already starts to be a specialization even at the first, first cell division. And then, you know, in the first days of life, um, already complex organization and, and interaction that happens as the blastocyst forms and then as implantation occurs, um, as the structure of the placenta develops, the structures, support structures necessary um, to support the, the life of the growing embryo and then the, the fetus and then, you know, on and on as, as the, the cells, specialized cells start to develop. But, but, but in the early embryo, right, all of the cells are, have this, this pluripotency um, and even in the very earliest stages, um, totipotency, meaning that, you know, if, if the embryo divides 
early on, that's how you get identical twins, right? right? The, the cells that split off have the potency to become a whole new individual, right? Um, but as, as things get more specialized, that no longer is the case. And, and so once you get to the, the kind of full, uh, more fully developed stages of, of life, this kind of decentralized organization is, um, is no longer sufficient and, um, and you need a kind of ma uh, a centralized master part that accounts for the unity of the whole. And uh, exactly, you know, how that works throughout development. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there's still a, a lot, a whole lot that we just don't understand <laughs> about embryonic and, and fetal development. Um, it's a, it's really a great, uh, great mystery, uh, right. Even, even to those who are, who are experts in this. Right. Um, so, you know, exactly what's going on at each stage is, is unclear. It's, it seems likely to me that um, when you get to sort of intermediate stages, sort of after the embryonic stage and then in the, the kind of early fetal stages of development, that probably what's going on is that the placenta is playing the role of master part. Um, and then, you know, as the brain develops, right, that, that's, the brain then starts to take on that integrating role and then, and then fully right, uh, takes that on after, after birth. Uh, but I mean, that, that may or may not be correct developmentally in terms of what's happening. But, but the point is that to have a master part, you need to have evidence of self-directed uh, biological functioning um, and integration. And you clearly do have that beginning at fertilization. Right. Yeah. Um, right from the very beginning. Exactly. Absolutely. Our time is getting a little short, so I'd, I'd like to um, move on and ask you about a case, which I, I believe we mentioned a little bit earlier in the podcast, but I want to see how our, our discussion here fits into it. And it's the, the Jahai McMath case. And there are those who will argue that, that her case, the Jahai McMath case, undermines the brain death criteria. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could just briefly give us an overview of, of this case. And more importantly, tell us, how does your philosophical understanding of brain death either apply or not apply in her case? So the Jahai McMath case um, got a lot of coverage a number of years back. So it was a very tragic case. Um, a uh, young woman um, in 2013 went, underwent cardiac arrest after complications from a tonsillectomy. And when she was, she was eventually resuscitated and placed on ventilator support, but she had lost circulation uh, and, and so lost oxygen to the brain for a time. Uh, and as a result of that, um, the doctors uh, believed that she was brain dead. Uh, they declared her brain dead according to the, the diagnostic criteria uh, in mm -hmm. California at the time. And, um, but then the family refused to accept the diagnosis, uh, basically. The reasons for that are, are complicated. But, um, but in the end, uh, after the legal battle, it was ruled that Jahai was, in fact, dead, according to the state of California. But in a kind of compromise with the family, they allowed Jahai to be transferred to the state of New Jersey, which is unique in allowing those who have religious objections to um, neurological criteria for death 
basically who don't believe that brain death is death right. uh, for religious or other reasons, uh, such people can then refuse a neurological determination of death um, such that the person then still counts as alive until they've died on the basis of cardiopulmonary criteria. So Jahai and her family went to New Jersey uh, where she was, you know, continued to be on life support and uh, Jahai effectively survived, you know, quote unquote, for about four and a half years um, <laughs> until she then um, died to get quote unquote, presuming that she was still alive of liver failure um, in 2018. Um, now what's so, so clearly this case seems to undermine the idea that brain death is death, right? If you can keep somebody alive and not just, and not just alive in the, in the, the bare sense of the life support, keeping the heart and lungs going, but, um, but it, there were videos taken by Jahai's family that purport to show that she was sometimes able to move a finger or a toe upon command. MRIs were done uh, that showed that, that actually much of her brain still remained intact, which shouldn't have been the case um, so long after the, the brain death diagnosis, if it had been correct. So uh, people who have, who examined uh, Jahai uh, after long after the original brain death declaration and the California um, ruling of her as, as brain death, people who examined her, including Alan Schumann, uh, a major critic of brain death, as I mentioned earlier, uh, actually believe that Jahai was in a minimally conscious state and not truly brain dead at the time when they examined her, uh, which means in my mind that she could not have been brain dead uh, by definition, because it has to be irreversible um, when the, the original tests were done. So, you know, so the case does seem to indicate that these tests, the clinical criteria for diagnosing brain death are not foolproof um, and that you could have a case like Jahai's in which um, you, you get a kind of false positive, right? Uh, and, and in which if you, if you did uh, maintain the, the life support, then you would start to see actually evidence that in fact the, the brain is still uh, functioning even at some, at some low level. Um, so, so I think the case raises some important questions about the reliability of standard diagnostic criteria, uh, particularly for pediatric cases. We know that um, children are just, you know, much more resilient and their bodies, you know, much more capable of recovering uh, from, uh, from trauma than, than adults are. So I think especially in, in, in all of the outlier cases of individuals that were maintained on life support and that you know, we're able to, to kind of keep going for long periods of time after uh, uh, a clinical diagnosis of brain death are, are pediatric cases, the very long-term cases. So, um, so that, that does raise questions about those uh, diagnostic criteria. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that the, any medical criteria for determining death are, are going to be imperfect, um, precisely because, you know, if death is really metaphysically the separation of body and soul and separation of body and soul cannot be observed, right? You're, you're always going to be relying on some proxy in terms of observable biological function 
to determine when death or if death has in fact occurred. And, and we've never had a perfect proxy for that, right? right? Even, even cardiopulmonary criteria are not perfect because there can be conditions that mimic irreversible cessation of heart and lung function. Um, you know, then that's why, you know, back, you know, before our technology was more sophisticated, people were aware that there could be false uh, diagnoses of, of death, false determinations of death. And, and they would even sometimes, you know, bury people with a, with a bell, right. In the right. casket yeah. or something like yep. that, just in yep. case. Yep. Right. So, um, so I think, I mean, while I'm not saying that it's okay that we have, that we have um, diagnostic criteria that are, that are uh, not as, as, as good as they, as they perhaps could be. Um, I, I do think it's important to recognize that when you're making judgments about, about death, what we're dealing with is always moral certitude, not 100% physical certitude. Uh, if you had to wait to get really the 100, 100% physical certitude, as I said before, you'd really have to wait for active decomposition to start to occur, which for public health reasons uh, and other reasons um, is, has never been right the way that, that we've dealt with this. Very interesting. Lots of questions come up with that case. Right. right. Um, we're getting towards the end, um, but I, and I want to ask this question, and it's it's the so what question. So we've been talking for the past almost an hour about some of the the you know the, the philosophical, the theoretical understandings of brain death and everything else. What's the practical relevance of this, or, or why is this important for the average person? Well, one of the things that makes this relevant for the average person is that it does connect to the issue of organ donation. Uh, the, the vast majority of organs that are donated are, are donated um, with a, a protocol that occurs um, with donors who are declared dead on neurological grounds. And the reason for that is that if you're, if you're declared dead on neurological grounds, uh, that means that if the rest of your organs are, are healthy and can be kind of artificially kept going by keeping you on life support, um, then you can procure organs that are very, very healthy because they have not spent any time without receiving oxygenated blood, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of organ transplantation, uh, the ability to, uh, to harvest organs from um, brain-dead donors um, is, in a way, the kind of best scenario in terms of the quality of the organs. And this is also part of the reason why many people have been skeptical about brain death, is they say, well, this just, just seems a little too convenient that, right. <laughs> that right. the, uh, the shift in and the then acceptance medically and legally for uh, neurological criteria for death, the shift in those, in those definitions of death occurred around the same time as we were developing uh, the technology for organ donation. Or so donation, that right. a lot of people surprise, say, surprise. well, that's, that's really suspicious. <laughs> this makes it sound like maybe this is just a fiction so that we could, we could, we could get organs from people who are, yeah, I mean, almost dead, practically dead. Right. But, but not really dead. Um, so, you know, and so, and then that is a reason for uh, suspicion. Again, I, I, I do think that the, at least theoretically, right. That the neurological account of death is, is sound. Uh, but I do understand uh, the suspicion there. And, and so 
in terms of people's own practical decision making, right? If for those who are uh, unconvinced that brain death is death, then it's important to know that in terms of knowing, for instance, whether or not you yourself uh, want to be an organ donor, um, mm-hmm. or you know, if you ever have to make such decisions for family members, right? It's right. it's it's yep. good to know uh, where where you stand on this question. Absolutely. And, and we get that here at the NCBC. We do get, um, sometimes we do get consults of people asking us, you know, should I be an organ donor? Should I not be an organ donor? Right. And, and now I can, well, I can, I can, uh, I can connect them to this podcast and right. say, here, listen to this. And, you know, maybe this, you know, maybe this will help you to, uh, you know, to make that decision. Right. What final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? Well, that's always a hard question. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that this, um, like many debates, right? This is this is a very, very difficult um, debate, and I, I think what's what's important is to, to kind of consider it, the issues, you know, with an open mind, um, and you know, and and try to come to the best conclusion um, that you can come to, right, on the basis of the available evidence and and the arguments after after thinking it through, and then decide. You know, for yourself, um, what you what you are convinced by, and what you're kind of willing to accept um, in terms of these uh, these debates, right? About what does and doesn't count as death. Now, it, you know, and there are very few people, fortunately, who are who are ever going to have to be faced with this with this question because very few people uh, end up dying uh, because their brain is dead. Uh, most for most people, right? The death occurs. By other means, it's largely people who have suffered from traumatic injuries, accidents, you know, things like that, mm-hmm. that, uh, that this actually becomes a, a live question. So thankfully, right, most, most of us uh, never have to deal with this in practice, uh, but, uh, but it's good to think about. And it's also for anybody involved in, the, in medicine, right, doctors, nurses, and so on, who uh, may be involved in these things, right? It's, it's good to understand where you are so that, you know, you can decide in good conscience, right, how how to act uh, when these issues are at stake. Very good. Melissa Michella, thank you for your time today, and and thank you for a great interview. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening. It was a pleasure speaking with you. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, hover on the Blogs and Podcasts button, and then click Bioethics on Air. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Thank you for listening today, and may the Lord's peace be with you.